All right, and welcome to the fourth bonus episode of Oi Spaceman, an increasingly misnamed Doctor Who love story, although today we are going to be talking about Doctor Who, uh, but this is going to be a little different because Shana is not involved in this conversation. Um, so typically, uh, again, I'm Daniel, and Shana is my regular co-host and my wife and the person I care about most in the world. She is out of town this week. Uh, so we didn't get a chance to record. Uh, it turns out that uh, a couple weeks ago, when uh, Jane uh, guested on Spaceman, and uh, we chatted about the Time Monster, uh, Jane, Jane and I kind of stayed on after the end of the episode, uh, was recording, and then chatted a bit, and uh, had a really uh, interesting conversation. Um, I had forgotten to hit stop on the recorder, um, and so, kind of with her permission, I've edited it down a little bit. I've, I've kind of taken out some extraneous material. Um, but this is pretty much just a straight-up conversation between Jane and myself. Um, I don't think it's the conversation either one of us would have had about these topics had we kind of gone into it thinking we are going to be doing this for public consumption. So, you know, you're going to get a little bit of behind-the-scenes here. Um, I also talk a little bit about kind of the origins of Voice Space Band, kind of where that came from. And, uh... We really just have a really kind of casual but intense conversation about, you know, how we feel about the Moffat era uh, in general, uh, Series 6 in particular, and, uh, you know, kind of the, the what we expect from a kind of feminist Doctor Who um, and from Doctor Who in general. So uh, I think this is a really, really interesting conversation. Um, forgive some of the pauses and some of the glitches and stuff. I try to kind of keep this as natural as possible. So, uh, there is going to be a little bit more, um, you know, kind of filler than maybe you're used to from this, uh, podcast. Uh, but, uh, I hope you'll stick with it. I think it, it gets to be a really interesting conversation. Um, one thing that Jane asked me, uh, to, uh, mention to you guys, uh, in this intro was, uh, that she does make a, a Miss Andrick joke, uh, kind of early on, uh, just right before we get into the, uh, Stephen Moffat conversation. Um, Jane does not, and, and I do not, I, I would hope you would believe, but Jane certainly does not believe that men are actually inferior to women. Um, that is uh, hyperbole, uh, meant for comic effect between two people just chatting, and, uh, is in no way intended to represent, uh, anyone's actual beliefs. So, I have a cat crying at me, she apparently wants some treats, so I'm gonna go do that, um, and I hope you will enjoy this um, kind of very special, interesting, um, non-Shana episode of Oi Spaceman. Uh, don't worry, Shana, we'll be back soon, although uh, I think we are going to have at least one more uh, little bonus bit uh, with just me and someone else uh, before uh, Shana shows up. So uh, enjoy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I got to get to work in the morning, so I'm probably going to get to bed fairly soon. But um, this was very nice. I'm very happy you came on and, and talked to us, and uh, we want to bring you back again sometime soon. Yay. It doesn't have to be the mutants. Oh, no. I, what, <laughs> you know, we could do the Crotons, I know, or uh, Paradise Towers, and I want to cover that one eventually. Um, actually, I actually quite like the Crotons, um, so we might do oh, that one pretty soon. For me, it's because... That was the first Troughton serial I ever saw. Yeah. Not, not 
including like the five doctors, um, which was technically the first time I saw Troughton in the role. And it was weird because it was also like my introduction to Uber fandom. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd, I'd gone to a, a, a convention in Detroit and met someone who was like, oh, you haven't seen Troughton? Well, you've got to come over and see Troughton. So um, my girlfriend and I went over and um, this guy was like the complete stereotypical Uber fan. Um, was he wearing an anorak? No, but he was kind of a big greasy slime ball. And... Um, my people get it okay <laughs> and but it was you know so i saw it like you know in this strange guy's living room there were three or four other people there besides us and um i was so enchanted with Trouton for Trouton's performance it's like wow this is this is really neat and there's some interesting visuals and also yeah. some really bad acting i'm like huh i really like peck's lives episode about that one that's, I mean, that was one of their very early ones, but that's a very, they do a really good episode about that. Yeah. What I find, I, I mean, I find, uh, I mean, I'm a chemist. That's my, that's my day job. Um, and uh, I find it interesting that the doctor actually uh, saves the day by teaching chemistry, by teaching people to make sulfuric acid, you know, which is always just kind of a, a nice little bit. And uh, Zoe getting to be brilliant uh, and smarter than the doctor is always uh, something I love because yeah. I, I have this deep love for Zoe, which if you've listened to any Oi Space Man, you probably gathered. Wow, it's really hard not to love all things Zoe, isn't it? It is. It really is. Um, yeah, I got to meet, uh, we got to meet Wendy Padbury in 2014 at Chicago TARDIS. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, I actually ran into her in the elevator. Like I was, I thought about paying for like an autograph and I was like, Oh, that's just, I just, I, I've never done that. And I always feel like this just feels kind of just desperate, you know, like not that that's a bad thing, but just, and I like, I just don't want to feel like I've done that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually ran into her as we were like leaving the convention because we had to bring uh, Ruthie along and uh she was a tiny 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 i mean she was she was very very small so this is almost two years ago so and she was i mean like handheld at this point and um so we brought ruthie along and uh we were carrying her out and uh uh we ran into wendy padbury and wendy padbury like fell in love with our dog (laughs) and shane is like i just wanted to let you know that my husband like really loves you as zoe and like all that sort of thing and wendy padbury like patted my arm very like you know condescending very condescending like i was trying not to you know it was like she's yeah. like oh bless she's like oh look you know there's another 30 something guy with a beard who like is masturbated to looking at me in a skin tight outfit and it's like no i love like all the things not just i've thought about you know your ass in the mind robber it's not just that you know <laughs> um, i mean you know that's certainly a part of it you know but no, um, no, she was very, very kind, but it was very much like, Shana, why did you have to do that? You know, you just embarrassed me in front of Wendy Padbury, but like, I got to meet Wendy Padbury, so I guess it, it balances out in the long run, right? There you go. I do my notes on, on paper just because I just, when I was doing like, uh, calculus and chemistry, like organic chemistry, you know, you do that all on, you know, with pencil and paper anyway. So I just got in the habit of doing all like notes that I do for stuff on pencil and paper. So I just have notebooks that are full of like, you know, episode 87 and then like the title of the story and then like my kind of intro bit and then all the, you know, just kind of big like topics 
Um, and I used to kind of write down more. In some stories I do. Um, the searching for Fushals I put more. I do more uh, background into because there's not like a kind of deep literature on that yet. So I feel like I kind of have the obligation, not the obligation, but I have the desire to, to try to find something a little bit deeper. Whereas I feel like with Doctor Who, that's just been like covered so many times that it's, it's, it's more like try to find something clever to say. Yeah. But like at the same time, I don't feel like I'm, I'm having to like, you know, push ahead onto new ground, you know, like there's a difference. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's the challenge with Doctor Who. So much has been said about it already. It's like, how do you just not regurgitate what other people have already said? I, um, I don't know. You probably haven't listened to any of the other podcasts I do with uh, my buddy Lee, the movie podcast I do. No, I haven't. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of a drunken hangout kind of podcast. Um, but it's, uh, it's a kind of a movie podcast. We do all kinds of stuff. We're actually doing a movie, a series on sex comedy starting up next week. And uh, the first one we're doing is Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, because uh, I insisted. And then we're get, diving right into, like, the, the gutter, the dreck. So we're doing, like, 70s, like, titty movies, which uh, is always fun. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll send you a link to that. We did, uh, we did like, a whole series on noir films, uh, noir films, excuse me, uh, earlier in the year. Um, so we did, like, a, a bunch of... Um, you know, we did M, we did, um, you know, Kiss of Death, we did, uh, you know, got a Blast of Silence, we did a bunch of stuff. And, and so we just kind of, we just kind of throw stuff out there, whatever we're interested in. But that's a, that's a fun podcast. Um, but I can't remember why I was bringing that up, except like, you know. Substitute your own horn. <laughs> Except it's kind of a weird show because I'm the I'm the kind of a weird lefty you know political guy who's always like looking for like deeper meaning, and then you know like there's another co-host who's very much like you know I thought the 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 gunshot and like this part was cool you know, and then Lee the uh, the kind of the guy who runs the podcast is kind of halfway in between and he's kind of like he's kind of down for whatever. So it's a very like interesting vibe we get sometimes. Um, but we did Punch Drunk Love. Uh, do you know that film? That's Adam Sandler, isn't it? Yeah, that's Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, film. That's uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big like uh, '90s indie directors guy. Like that's kind of my my bread and butter to some degrees, which is why I wrote a piece about Quentin Tarantino. I might have seen that, but I don't think I did. I think it was like on my list of things to see at some point. And I just never it's it's worth seeing. I would I would I I actually really like the film, but um it was amazing like the response that the the one of the guys just had like this really intense response to it. It's like this is just really uncomfortable and difficult. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Like it's it's like he actually had the authentic emotional response to the uh film that was like intended without having the kind of intellectual background for it, right? Yeah, like uh, that legitimate response to the way the art's supposed to work because the approach is like, oh, it's an Adam Sandler movie. Like, no, this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie starring Adam Sandler. That's a different thing. Right. It's like um, Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell. Yes, very Not much. Not a Will Ferrell vehicle. It's a movie that he actually does some real acting in. Right. Yes. Agreed. Come on, Kent. Come on. Come on. No, yeah. Um. God, what was I going to... Um, Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was talking about um, a red dwarf, and uh, you know, actually, we kind of got brought on to a return press almost by accident. Um, I don't know. 
Phil might tell a different story, but I was uh, talking on Twitter and I, I said, you know, we're talking, I was having a conversation about like uh, Tumblr doms um, and, uh, you know, terrible online DS relationships that, you know, dudes think they can just boss submissives around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said something idly like, oh, I could write a book on this topic. <laughs> and Phil messaged me and was like, would you like to? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, it's kind of like one slot that we each have very different like attitudes towards what the kinds of things we're doing. But she's got something really interesting that she's picking up for next week that talks about sex work and ableism and that sort of thing. Cool. So, it, and it's so refreshing that we, we get someone who's writing without like a particular media slant you know right. like you know where we write, write write about doctor who and use that as a vehicle to kind of get into some of these more actually interesting issues she's just like well there's this issue and i'm going to talk about it and, <laughs> right and be well, really engaging and funny while i do it shana shana is i mean shana's a force of nature i mean i married up that's the that's the only thing i'll say about that like she's uh well she's, most men do yeah I mean, almost by definition, right? Like, you know, it's 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 just like one of those, uh, you know, men are just terrible in general, you know. No, men are not just terrible in general. They're just inferior in general. <laughs> okay, Stephen Moffat. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, no. Yeah, one thing one thing I think I I'm actually I'm actually kind of done with the whole like Stephen Moffat conversation. I'm actually I'm I'm just I've gotten to this point where I'm so tired of having the conversation with people that um I'm just kind of like I don't know, it's still in our intro. I need to I need to record a new intro and just take it out completely. But, you know, it was it was really just kind of like it started off because I was like, you know, we're generally not fans of Stephen Moffat. It was almost like a uh like a, a mission statement you know, and then it just kind of became a joke, you know, like, you know, another adult content. Um, But uh, now I'm just kind of like, it's like this vestigial thing that's a part of our intro and I need to just like take it out because, um, but I only record a new intro every few months when I just get bored with the old one. (laughs) Yeah, I I do. I do all the post-production on my space man, by the way. So, you know, yeah. Um, So what is it that you don't like about Moffat? Because I've heard some of your podcasts where you're kind of like, ooh, I don't like this, that, or the other thing. But I haven't heard, like, the coherent, like, big picture. Because, you know, Phil's done the whole, like, you know, eviscerating the Moffat hate crowd for, you know, being terrible at reading the show. But you guys are really good at reading the show. And so I would think that your critique of him would be actually valid and interesting to hear. I started writing a, th- a piece actually right before Phil came on because I knew the Moffat issue was going to come up and I knew Phil hadn't listened to podcasts. And so I started writing this thing, which ended up, which was going to be a deliberate takedown of his two pieces about, you know, the Moffat era, essentially that like those two pieces he wrote. And I wrote the first part and then just didn't have time to do the others. And then he came on and, uh, we just kind of got away from me and then I never came back to it. And I, probably should like eventually like update that and then like write it um and probably put it on a return press and that will be an interesting moment where i'm like oh phil i'm going to write this piece which is all about how terrible your piece is about Stephen moffat are um <laughs> i think he would appreciate that <laughs> oh yeah absolutely um he actually responded we got into it we, we talked a little bit in comments and um 
I don't know. It was kind of in the process of starting to write that. I just kind of realized that like Moffat just isn't that interesting to me anymore. Here's kind of where I land on it. I think that like, I really appreciate your work and Phil's work in terms of like kind of understanding Moffat as this like kind of metatextual writer, like fundamentally metatextual. I just don't see it that way. I don't think it's that. I don't think he's that complicated. I don't think that there's like, I, I feel like I really appreciate you finding it, but I don't feel like he's writing it. I feel like it's something that you guys are finding. And maybe that's me being unfair or kind of, you know, being insulting even. And I don't mean it to be that way. For me, I think fundamentally the aesthetic of the kind of sitcom writer writing for Doctor Who and writing for the joke always has kind of just put me off the show. Um, I don't, I mean, I just kind of despise the Matt Smith era and I'm kind of increasingly on the, like, I just don't like Matt Smith's interpretation of the character and I don't like the directions that Moffat took it. Um, kind of writing for Matt Smith, you know, um, in particular, I think the, I mean, it's hugely gender essentialist. I mean, even though it's trying to, it's subverting, I'm sorry, because I know you really like this stuff and I know you've written very eloquently on this stuff, but I feel like, like the idea of saying like, um, Amy Pond is this like kind of brash and badass, uh, woman who might work as a kissogram, but is like still like, you know, she has this, these kind of tomboy tendencies and that Moffat thinks that's in any way clever. Whereas I feel like, yes, that was clever when sitcoms were doing it in 1992. Um, haven't we moved on from this? Um, that's a fair point. I feel like that's the, and, and that's, and it's almost that aesthetic. Like, I feel like it, for me, it, it doesn't really move on from that. And I think part of my issue in terms of, uh, watching it is that we, Shane and I watched it. We didn't get into the show until like 2012 or so. And so we watched everything kind of like bent watch through all of it. Uh huh. And so I think, I think watching the Moffat era in particular and kind of plowing through all of like series five and series six in a week or two, um, does them a disservice. Whereas watching them week by week, I think maybe like you, we, we would have gotten more of the kind of subtleties of the character and some of the, because like we did, we recently did an episode on the Pandora opens and the big bang. And kind of coming back to it and kind of getting it in little doses, it definitely is like, oh, no, I kind of get this more. I kind of get why people like it. Um, I just find it really simplistic. I find it really difficult. Um, I don't even really like Blink, honestly. Um, I I think Blink is this dramatically overrated episode. Um, I actually, and this is, this is where people like, like shut down the computer and say, you know, you are terrible and I will never listen to your opinion again. I think Fear Her is a better episode of television than Blink. Oh, that's a very interesting opinion. Yeah. Um, because I think Fear Her is ultimately about a human story, and I don't think Blink is. And that's that's an aesthetic that's an aesthetic thing for me, yeah. is that I'm not interested in the in the kind of the simplistic mindfuckery of Blink. Well, except you know? that there is a, a, a human story in Blink, which is Sally Sarah's obsession and Lawrence's obsession. And, um, oh, which one is Lawrence? Oh, the, the, the guy at the DVD store guy? Yeah, the DVD okay. store guy. Sorry, I haven't watched it in a while, so I apologize. And Billy Shipton, the, uh, the, the cop. Yeah. And so there's the, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the thematic thread of these characters is obsession. 
and how do you let go? I get that. I mean, but I, it's really, I, but it's really more about its mechanics. It's right. like that. It's like the clockwork um, robots from um, uh, Girl in the Fireplace, where you see all the mechanical workings going on with them inside, you know, inside a plate of glass, and that's kind of what Blink does. Right. And and I get. I mean, I think what I've come to, and especially if you listen back to our early episodes. I didn't really get it at all, like how people could be critically engaged with the show and appreciate Moffat. Like I feel like at the you know at the beginning we really were kind of almost overtly like the Moffat hate hour. Um, <laughs> I mean, I even considered renaming the podcast the Moffat hate hour at a certain point. Um, I think episode five or six is called "Fish Fingers and Custard Bullshit," um, actually, um, which is one of our greatest titles, uh, to be honest. But. Uh, um, it's one of the few I allowed myself to swear in. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I understand. <clears throat> I get now how people can be critically engaged and be good readers of the show and be good feminists and appreciate Moffat because I also think Moffat is like hugely gender essentialist in this way that like even when he's trying to subvert gender expectations, he's just playing into this like weird essentialism. And that's just kind of like, that essentialism is necessary for some of those jokes to work right and then some of it but then sometimes a joke seems like it's gender essentialist but it's also like drawing from ancient history of the show that most people aren't even aware of right and i i like because i actually watched through all of the modern series and then went back and watched everything in order from an unearthly child um like at night like i was this is when i was finishing school so I would do like calculus homework and chemistry homework and such. And then I would sit with my laptop and like I was originally just getting the DVDs from Netflix. And so I would watch and I watched everything through everything that existed from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I started watching the classic series and kind of getting some of these references a little bit more, um, it did change the way I kind of saw like I, and I, we got I the, um, we got in this time monster episode, we got the do what you're told line. Yeah, no, man, that's something I should have I should have brought up because I I twigged to it when I was rewatching it this afternoon. I'm like, oh, that's a that's a bit that you know comes back. I yeah. will say I think that the Capaldi years have been dramatically better than the Matt Smith years, and I'm kind of on that fence of saying like the real thing that I really hated was Matt Smith's performance and what Matt Smith brought to the show because I I just I never there's this moment in the uh, in the eleventh hour right. Um, uh-huh. And this is this is kind of like like first of all like the idea of I mean writing the doctor as this character who forces an eleven year old girl to make him like five dinners, I mean that's just like that 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 just feels beyond the pale to me, like um, it, it feels kind of immature and silly and it feels like you're a nine hundred year old time lord and I'm making a child like do manual labor for me. I just kind of hate the doctor in that moment and I understand I'm supposed to think it's funny and charming but I think he's just an immature twit. <laughs> Um, but there's this moment later on and, uh, it's the moment when he runs into, there's the guy who he needs a laptop, any laptop so he can do the magic thing and put all the ones everywhere and like, uh, prove that he's the doctor and brilliant and all the leaders of the world should talk to him. So he needs a laptop. I was like, Oh, someone's always a laptop. And he goes in and the dude's looking at porn and, uh, the doctor just kind of looks. And he says, Oh, by the way, delete your internet history. Right, right. I mean, he, he has this totally kind of... shames him. I mean, that's he shames him. Of, he completely shames him for it. And this is not the same doctor who was, like, praising Captain Jack and the Empty Child, right? 
Like this is not the doctor who wrote. This is not the doctor who said, you know, he's just a 51st century guy with 51st century values or whatever that line is. Which is the moment that I kind of fell in love with the doctor in a lot of ways when I saw that. When I was like, oh, this is a like a highly sex positive, highly, um, you know, open to experience kind of character. And then, you know, you never, and then of course they're both written by Moffat. And so it's like, well, where's this? I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like I like Moffat better as a writer under another showrunner. Whereas I feel like as showrunner, he doesn't have anybody to put those kind of baser impulses in check. And so you well, get like. Davies never actually put anything in check that Moffat did. He was the one writer that Davies wouldn't touch any of his stuff. Which is, I mean, which is weird then that. Like, there is this, I mean, it feels like there's this just fundamental difference between the scripts he turned in under Davies versus what he started doing once he was showrunner. And so maybe that was self-censorship or self, like, just kind of writing to a tone. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I, the, the line, the thing I've always said is, you know, in 20 years, we're going to find out what was really going on behind the scenes. But right now, everybody's doing EPKs and, and just being nice, you know? Um so I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going on and where these sources are coming from. Um, all I can say is that there is this like aesthetic choice going on in Moffat's scripts and in his and in his time as showrunner that just puts me off the show. And I feel like it's just kind of flat and kind of dumb. And so I really like hearing people like you and Phil kind of like tell me why I'm wrong. But I still like I sit down and I watch it and I'm like I still I don't. I'm, I'm, I like I get it. I know what you're saying. I just I can't get on board with it. You know. Um, well, you you don't have to like it. I right. mean, and yet and yet, listen is one of my favorite stories ever. You know. Oh yeah, it's listen is brilliant. Listen is oh. brilliant. But um, I don't know. I I would certainly agree that much of the um, character aesthetics, I would agree, are flat and dumb. But I wouldn't say the show is flattened up because it's really kind of doing a lot of clever stuff that no one is pointing a finger to. It's pointing a finger at some other clever stuff. And so you just focus. It's the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You're being misdirected to looking at the flashy glitz stuff. And no one's pointing out all of the interesting, the actually interesting things that are going on on underneath. I really appreciated your Stephen Thompson conversation. That was something I meant to mention when we were um, recording, actually. Um, Oh, um, yeah, I, I listen to everything you guys do. So yeah. <laughs> I, I have listened to every episode of Pex Lives. Um, Me too. Yeah. Um, and every Shabcast, et cetera. So um, I really appreciated that conversation because like doing a like a, a read of Stephen Tom, like a redemptive reading of um, uh, the pirate episode. Which was I I was flabbergasted that I got such poor um such a poor reception because when i saw it i was like yeah oh wow this is really cool there was one moment where i was really pissed off which was the whole rory resurrection thing before i understood what was going on with that um i I felt like i was being emotionally manipulated at that point and this is this is where like i really love the symbolic readings you bring um to the show even though like you you bring things to it that i don't that i don't like i i'm a i'm this uh like deeply like 
<laughs> I don't have a background in, in like critical readings of things. Um, Shana, Shana has like two degrees in English. I am, you know, I, I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. I'm a very different. So I come at this very much from an amateur, you know, kind of point of view. Um, and not, this is not natural for me. It's just something that I'm interested in. So I've kind of like tried to like catch up. Um, and so, um, Moffitt's, Moffitt's stuff, you know, I would agree that if you're only going to watch the Moffat era once, that it's going to appeal to, it's primarily going to appeal to, to people with certain emotional aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got some friends who just absolutely love the ponds. They hate Matt Smith, but they love the ponds. Um, hate Clara and love Capaldi. Um, and that's kind of like how they feel about the Moffat era, but it's like the ponds are just so awesome. It doesn't matter that they're saddled with Matt Smith for their doctor. Um, and really love just, you know, everything that that Moffat did with it. But they're not like going through it, picking through the episode and doing a critique. They're just having their emotional. Right. And, and which, not- which people absolutely did with uh, David Tennant as well. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah. not a, I mean, that's that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Like if you really just dug into the ponds and you thought that was a great relationship. I kind of might have issues with the way you do relationships, but I, I'm not going to complain. Uh, like, if you just had a surface-level emotional response and that's it, I don't have a problem with that. Um, See, but I think that they do a terrible job with relationships, but I think that's done on purpose. I think it's meant to be not, oh, this is how you're supposed to do relationships, but these people are really kind of fucked up, and this is how it plays out in their relationships. And it's interesting. It's how not. You, how do you feel about Asylum and the Daleks? Oh, I love Asylum of the Daleks. I think it's really fascinating. Um, it's, How do you feel about Amy and Rory in Asylum of the Daleks? I guess is the, the question. Oh my god, they're so fucked up. They're yes. so fucked up. But it makes sense to me because Amy at, at root has abandonment issues. That is her that is her big emotional trauma, is being left behind. And she fears that because she can't have kids, which is something Rory really, really wants, she's going to be left behind. So she preemptively sabotages the relationship, which I see people do this all the time in relationships, you know, or people just preemptively sabotaging themselves so that they can get it out of the way before someone else does it to them. This is a thing. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, that's, I mean, it's absolutely something you see. I don't, and I guess this is where the aesthetics get in my way, right? Because I feel like, you know, as a as a married man who takes my relationship and my other relationships seriously, as someone who, uh, you know, if you're going to break Rory and Amy up in a three-minute short minisode between series, by the way, but if you're uh-huh. going to break them up, I feel like you owe it to the audience that, like, cares about this relationship to, like, deal with the fallout of that. And to kind of like repair this in three minutes in the middle of a kind of runaround in the Asylum of the Daleks feels like it's, you know, you're, you're just kind of saccharinely toying with us. Like, I understand that if you look at the details, because I have seen analyses of, of that. And like, if you look like line by line and you look at like what the, you know, the facial expressions and like, okay, th- there is text here that actually like demonstrates all this stuff. But fundamentally, it's still like, okay, we spent two minutes, like, we broke them up in between the episodes, and then like, oh, now they're back together, and the Doctor fixes his bow tie, and isn't he clever? And that's the impression I get upon 
a watch through. And I just think that's fundamentally like not the kind of show I want to watch. And whereas, that, whereas if Davies had tackled something like that, it would have been a running thread in their relationship. It would have been, it would have been the thing that would have been pointed to as opposed to like being not pointed to. Right. I mean, well, well, no, Dave, Davies brings the soap opera aesthetic to it, whereas yeah. Moffat kind of brings a sitcom. And I understand like saying like, do we really have to spend a season like dealing with Amy and Rory's like relationship? I, you know, like I, I understand that perspective as well. Like, like, you know, this isn't the show that should be dealing with that, but if it's not the show that should be dealing with that, we should just not be doing it. You know, I'm very interested in what Chris Chibnall is planning on doing because what you're saying actually points to one of the major flaws of the way both uh, Davies and um, uh, Moffat have gone about producing the show, which is just simply hand out assignments to people, do a little bit of rewriting if necessary, and you get something that's kind of like an ungainly monster where what a character is doing in one story doesn't necessarily follow into the next one. And so there's a lack of emotional resonance that you would normally expect from um, from a serialized narrative, which is what Doctor Who has now become. It wasn't that in the old days, of course. Despite you know, the fact that it was a serial. Despite the fact that it was a serial. Um, which but is it was one really... reason why I think the first year of Doctor Who, like the 63-64 season, is one of my favorite. Like, it's so brilliant, seasons. because it does actually have that character development. And, like, fuck off, Very Lambert was brilliant. Uh, just throw that out there. Yeah. Um, and so was David Whitaker. Yes. And uh, Anthony Coburn, quite honestly. I really love on Anna Earth and Child. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And what Chibnall's do- planning on doing is actually what Americans do for serialized, for, you know, for their television shows, which is to have all the writers work together at yeah. the same time and same the, place in a writer's room. It'll be a writer's room kind of concept, which I, th- I think that's great, personally. I, I mean, you know, I, I think we're kind of saying the same thing is... Uh, bring like like if you're going to make 21st century prestige television, which is what Doctor Who is now. Yeah, let's make 21st century prestige television and let's do it the way that any other show in the 21st any century any same competent person would do. Right. Exactly, <laughs> kind of like you know Davies and Moffat being such old fans of the show, just kind of like you know started doing it the way it had been done before, and Davies could get away with it because he would wrote so many more episodes than mm-hmm. Moffat. And so if you get a clunker in there, well, then here's Davies coming along to actually, you know, bring the focus back on, you know, on the character development for that season. And, I, you know, when you're I, writing six episodes instead of four, you know, you, or seven episodes, you can, you, know, right. you can do that. You can succeed at that. I, I really hope what Chibnall does is basically take a backseat on the writing and like maybe write two episodes a season. But provide a kind of guiding hand in terms of uh like you know like tone meetings i hope they have tone meetings you know do you see what he did with Broadchurch? i have not seen Broadchurch. i know i'm gonna have to before 2017 we might do we might watch it and then do a, a bonus episode on it because uh, i don't know if you noticed we we're now doing like basically monthly bonus episodes about stuff that isn't doctor who or red dwarf or anything it's just like uh we just did Django unchained and we did um um Chasing Amy. Um, yeah, that was a really powerful episode. Everybody says that. That was, uh, man, I'm actually really proud of that one. Um, well, you should be. 
I'm the, the Shayna, like Shayna was brilliant in that. Like that was, yeah. oh man, that she's was so hard. raw, and yeah. and that's it. We Shayna says around, people only like it when she cries. You walk around this world wearing masks, but it's not when she's crying; it's when she's angry. That's really fascinating, yeah. because that's just so honest and open and exposed and we don't usually do that with other people let alone for a you know huge audience to listen in on vicariously it's yeah no i i was i mean i i almost i joked with this about jack and i I joked with this with jack i'm like we should have just retired like we'll never do a better episode than that one Um, so like jack really kind of hates the moffat era too but for completely different reasons. And I'm like, oh, you know, from where Jack is coming from and what he wants the show to be, it makes total sense that he does not like the Moffat era. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't like much of the stuff past, uh, you know, the first year of the, of the, of the revival anyway. Yeah, he, yeah. like, he doesn't like really anything past Parting in the Ways except individual episodes here and there, basically. And, and likewise, knowing you and Shayna and what you are hoping to get out of the show... I, I can certainly see and actually agree that given your values that the, the show took a huge step backwards when Moffat took over because it didn't have that same, that same sense of progress um, in the re, in the realm of relationships that the Davies era did. And, you know, if that's what you're looking for, that's not what you're going to get from Moffat. Moffat's a, you know, like you say about Blink, he's inter- he's interested in the puzzle box. Yeah, and, he, and and that's I mean it's almost like sorry I, I'm I'm I haven't even thought about Moffat in so long that even having the conversation, puzzle box storytelling in general like uh, frustrates me, like it, it because it, it it's it's based on like I'm cleverer than you, you know, um, I, I will, and to I will me, and hide to me, information from you and therefore and like, to me it's it's fun it's not about I'm cleverer than you it's here's this wonderful little puzzle. Um, have fun figuring it out because it can be figured out. Um, you know, I don't feel that people who make crossword puzzles are lording over their knowledge of words and clues over me. They're providing a service for me to do something that I like to do in the first place. I like solving puzzles and puzzle box storytelling, you know, especially with in the Moffat era where there's all these other esoteric threads that really have nothing to do with the story and is all about an aesthetic and building up, you know, a um, a field of symbols and metaphors that can then be employed in new and interesting ways to interesting effects as the t- as time goes on. That's like that's in my wheelhouse. Like, yeah, and, and I and I completely understand. Like, if what you're, I mean, what you're looking for in Doctor Who or in media in general is the kind of symbols, the esoteric symbols, the uh, the the kind of uh, interconnecting metaphors then um moffat's kind of uh metatextual uh vision for the show and uh, you know his kind of uh, uh, i kind of the trope level you know like kind of subverting tropes and then subverting the subversion and subverting the subversion of the subversion um if that's what you're looking for which i i hope that i haven't oversimplified or, or you know, that's whatever. one of the things I'm looking for. That's something that excites me. Right. If that's what excites you, and this is kind of where I, what I've kind of come into is like understanding like there just is this aesthetic difference 
which there it isn't bridgeable to some degree. Like I'm going to look at it and go, yeah, but it doesn't have, you know, it just kind of feels empty to me. Whereas you're going to look at it and go, well, it's really clever and it's put together in all these interesting ways, etc. I would say it's very rich. Right. As and, opposed as opposed to empty. But at the same time, I could I I can sympathize with the emptiness that is there is often emotional. Right. And I guess I guess where I guess what I was trying to say is like reading your stuff and Phil's stuff, but particularly your stuff, has opened my eyes to a just a very different way of viewing Doctor Who and media in general, and that's what I really get out of your blog posts and your 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 essays because you know, I did. I you know, series for me, series six is almost completely disposable. Like there's, there's, I mean, I had literally just said like, that's probably, I'll never watch another episode of that. Like, I, and that's my favorite series of all time, which is like, (laughs) so we gotta, we gotta bring you back and talk about a series six story. Apparently that's going to happen. Um, I, I, I'll also, and this is, this is just me kind of, um, you know, kind of biographically, you know, we came into it in 2012. We kind of, you know, 2013, that uh, Series 7 was the first one we watched live, right? Uh, okay. And that's also the, the 15th anniversary year. And we kind of got into a lot of this, and I was kind of involved in Tumblr and the Moffat hate tag and all that sort of thing. And um, it just felt like, particularly in terms of podcasts, because that's also when I discovered podcasts and I started listening to podcasts, and find, found Doctor Who podcast, which I found the Verity podcast was the very first Doctor Who podcast I ever found. Um, and I just kind of obsessed with listening to that. And they had like eight episodes or something when I discovered it. So, um, you know, but, um, you know, kind of finding all these people talking about Doctor Who and then discovering that they were all Moffat fans was almost the thing that made me think Shannon and I need to do a podcast about Doctor Who. So in a sense, you know, well, Spaceman grew out of this like desire to be the the voice for the other side because I felt like all the podcasts I was listening to were just very adulatory towards this particular era of the show and this particular vision of the show. But also kind of coming at it in 2013 when there was this like triumphalism about like Matt Smith as the doctor in 2013. Like um have you seen an adventure in space and time? Uh yes. Okay. The moment where uh, William Hartnell's uh, who, Richard, what's his name? David Bradley. David Bradley, excuse me. I was going to say Richard Herndall, but that's obviously wrong. Um, <laughs> when David Bradley like, looks up and then sees Matt Smith standing there is like the moment when I just wanted to throw something at the screen because the idea that you're reminding me of Matt Smith in this moment is just like, you know, actively painful, you know? Like, and he's the doctor now. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's kind of where my brain goes in that moment. But, um, you know, there was this triumphalism about, you know, the mod that, that, you know, you saw all the, all the ads and all the like, and this is what we were trying to do. And Moffat being, um, you know, kind of, um, king of all that was domain and Doctor Who and kind of becoming a fan and kind of getting critically involved with the show in that era definitely influenced the way i felt about these things because i just had this like almost visceral like reaction against it and then feeling like um that reaction was just not being reflected elsewhere and 
you know, I'll t- that's that's what always Space Man grew out of was uh, Shane and I. I mean, I was getting into podcasts. I had been doing a podcast about craft beer actually, um, and that was kind of winding down. We were just kind of getting tired of that, and I knew that Shane and I would sit and talk about stuff and just have like interesting conversations. Like we will literally just sit and watch TV and like hit pause and then just chat for an hour and then hit play again. You know. And I'm like, Shane and I need to, like, I should be recording this and we should. And so, like, finding out a topic to talk about on a podcast. And then Doctor Who became the thing. And it started out as this more explicitly anti Moffat show. And then eventually we kind of started, you know, like, Jack discovered us, basically. And, wow. um, you know, that, you know, Oi Spaceman as it is now was kind of, you know, he definitely, you know, like, his fandom of it and promotion of it and, like, communication with us definitely pushed us in a in that direction a lot more but we were already kind of moving in that direction um but like if you go back and listen we did an episode zero which was uh just introducing ourselves like way 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 back (laughs) and literally i mean two of the things we said was like i'm gonna try to keep this pg-13 and we're not gonna talk about politics (laughs) good luck with that yeah yeah no and that was that um yeah, no, that, 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 that was literally, you know, that was literally in that episode was, you know, I said, yeah, we're going to keep it kind of PG-13, you know, we want to be accessible to people, and, uh, you know, we kind of have opinions about politics, but we're going to try to not, like, really talk about that. And then, like, episode five is called Fish Fingers and Custard Bullshit, so, you know. I like Fish, fish Fingers and Custard. It's another one of those alchemical blends. I'm, I get that. Um, yeah, but- I would... I, but, that but that I think, episode think, that episode think, is probably terrible because it was way way early in our in our process. I mean, there were some of those early ones where I'm like, we should revisit these, you know. But um, it, it occurs to me though that one of the other things that can influence how we respond to the show is the extent to which the characters resonate with us on a personal level. Sure. So, like you know, you know, I think Rose is a great character, but her issues were not the issues that I had to deal with mm-hmm. in my life. Um, I actually responded a lot more to Donna um, being, you know, Donna's age and kind of dealing with not being in, um, you know, a romantic relationship for, uh, for many years. Um, and I really responded to Amy Pond uh, just because I was always the girl who was left out of things at school, not out of family. I didn't, I had a great family life, uh, still do, but socially that was my, my big issue. And the moment where she, you know, in 11th hour, where she goes out into the garden to sit and wait for the doctor who doesn't show up. I mean, it it just tears me up every single time. And it has everything to do with that particular character and my particular issues. Sure. And, And it wouldn't, it wouldn't resonate with someone that doesn't feel that um you've probably read caitlin's stuff on clara i've read some i haven't re- i've uh, listened to she did an episode with the pixels boys i've listened to that i haven't read a lot of her stuff but i've read some of it to, like to get to kind of know where she's coming at yes so she understood clara before anyone else did that this was a um bubbly personality masking an inner control freak um, because that is Caitlin's issue as well. Right. Um, and, you know, was making 
outstanding predictions of, well, this is what the character is, and to have then the show actually point a finger and say, yes, this is exactly what the character is, has just got to be incredibly affirming for her. And now she's done this, you know, 101 um, Clara's to see book. You know, she's obviously deeply invested in this particular character in the way that she wasn't with Amy Pond. Right. And, you know, I'm kind of the same way. It's like, yeah, there are some aspects of Clara's control issues that I can identify with, but that's not something that I get emotional about. See, I just fundamentally disagree that Clara is a control freak. Like, I just, I just, I just don't see it. Huh. I, I mean, I see her as a doormat. I think what? she lets the doctor walk all over her. How so? I, well, I mean, you know, she's... Like her control freak tendencies, compartmentalization, um, compartmentalizing all the different aspects of her life, setting the boundaries of when she's actually going to travel as opposed to being the someone who's at the whim of the doctor, like, you know, going all the way back to Barbara and Ian. She's like, no, you're going to you're going to come pick me up on Wednesdays and this is the way it's going to be. I, I get, I get that. And you know, like, like I, I under control freak, I think is such a loaded word and it's such a gendered word for me. Mm. It, it feels such like, um, like a, it, it codes for things that aren't just like wanting to control elements of your life. Which I think it's completely valid to say I want to have a home life and a uh, a TARDIS life, right? I think that's completely a reasonable thing, which is why Rose had a phone that she could call her mom and why Martha comes back home a couple of times and why Donna comes back home and, and wants to see her family and that sort of thing. I mean, this isn't new to New Who. It's right. I mean, even, even um, Tegan gets to see her family or tries to in, uh, what is it, The Awakening? Or am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not like this is this is like this brand new concept. I think that for me, but what none I, of those characters set the boundaries. I get that, but uh, sorry, I was I was kind of having two conversations in my head at once, so I apologize. Um, I guess what I would say is a, it's not like this new thing that characters want to have to want to have two separate lives. It's kind of run through all new who. So that doesn't feel that new to me. The idea that she's setting the boundaries, like, I mean, if that's how. I get that that's important and I get that that's a character trait. I have a real problem with calling it control freak because ah. control freak is such a gendered negative language to use towards a young woman who just wants to like have. That's how she. That's how she self-describes. That's how she self-describes because uh, that's in the truth field, right? Yes. Yeah, because Moffat puts that in her mouth, though. Like, like that never felt authentic to me. That felt like Moffat like saying something sexist about a female character, and that's completely me reading like the you know Doily and versus author. Uh, 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 you know. Okay. Like, whereas, like, whereas to me it makes perfect sense because there's an aspect of wanting to be in control that Clara herself wants to disavow because she finds, you know, for, for, for societal reasons. That's why she's got to put on a mask right. because I, that's something that's not acceptable. 
especially for women. So I could see her completely internalizing that comp- that language, which extends to like self-image and how other people see you, which is also one of Clara's issues with her costuming choices. I think costuming is something that kind of doesn't get really a lot of attention uh, in the show in terms of this is actually an element of characterization. Costuming is absolutely more important than people give it credit for, um, particularly, can I just say men, cis men, um, don't pay any attention to it. Um, and that goes all the way back to 63, you know, Barbara's clothes versus, you know, Susan's clothes. Uh, yeah. You know, tell, to, I mean, Doctor Who has always told a story about his characters through, through the clothing that they wear. Um, but Joe Grant, you know, uh, Joe Grant, I can't believe we didn't talk more about Joe Grant in this episode, but, um, uh, you know, I tried to, I tried to bring up the costuming. Yeah, I, I meant to. I meant to uh, to pull up uh, to pull up a Joe Grant thread, and then I think we got distracted with um, something else. Um, it's fine. Like it's there. There will be more opportunities to talk about Joe Grant. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. Like, and this is this is kind of where I feel like that there is this just sort of where the aesthetic decisions kind of get in my way, to where I feel like the um, gender essentialist thinking that kind of goes into the making of the show where i feel like there is this kind of overtly essentialist you know kind of obviously sexist thinking um whether that's moffat himself or just what's going on at the bbc um so infects the show for me and so pervades the show that it i find it hard to kind of give it a redemptive reading unless i choose to uh-huh. I feel like there are a lot of defenses of those kinds of moments, and I'm not trying to diminish your defense of that of that of the truth field and the and her calling herself control freak. I'm not trying to say that's not a valid reading, but I feel like that's the same kind of reading that we would give to like a a uh, a Barry Letts era thing, you know, or like a Robert Holmes thing, and say, yeah, well, it's like incredibly sexist the way it was written, but like if you want to, if you interpret it through this lens and you kind of say, well, this is kind of what this character is doing. I mean, we do it with Leela all the time. Like, I mean, we did it with Leela in the most recent one we did about Horrifying Rock is we absolutely, you know, interpreted Leela away from uh, Terrence Dix and said, Terrence Dix doesn't get to tell me who Leela is. Leela gets to tell me who Leela is. I just feel like I shouldn't have to do that in 2013. I feel like that that it. it but you're always gonna, you're always going to have to do that. I mean, that's the nature of progressivism, is that you're trying. You can't. No one's going to be perfectly progressive. Right. I think that Moffat just Moffat feels so like stuck in these things to me that I don't want to give him the credit for it. And I have feel you, like. Have you um uh, studied Wonder Woman at all? Have you read Phil's book on Wonder? Woman? I need to. I it's 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 all my kind of like things I need to do in my life is to study Wonder Woman. So um, Wonder Woman is a problematic feminist icon. Um I know I know enough to know like I mean obviously I'm I'm familiar with the background of the creators and such so I, I know invented, enough to invented by Marston who right. and you know at that time Marston was very much a feminist. Um you know we're talking about the 40s. Right. And you know progressive in many in many ways but there was still that streak of essentialism that he adhered to even though he reversed the uh entailments of that essentialism right that that women should be in charge and and men should not um and 
I don't think that the I, I think that essentialism is, is problematic because essences don't actually exist. They're actually reflections of um, the prototypes of the prototypes at the center of our categoriz- conceptual categorizations. Right. And if you've got a limited, if you've got less diversity in your personal experiences, then you're going to have stereotypical categorizations of human beings. And that's just how the brain works. I mean, it's the same process for how we come up with ideas of trees having rough bark, even though there's some trees that have smooth bark, and how birds are going to fly. But there are penguins that don't. Um, and it's always kind of baffling to see that our what we thought was the essence of a category is not actually essential at all. It's just that's the data that we've been exposed to. And, of course, Moffat has not been exposed to the same breadth and diversity as um, Davies, um, who's had a much more interesting life and right. uh, much broader experiences and is able to... to I mean, he probably doesn't even probably isn't even aware of of the fact that his categorization of people has a lot more latitude and diversity than most people do. And yet, you also see that there's problematic stuff in Davies' work, um, his attitudes towards older women and mothers in particular. That's kind of a running theme. Yeah, that's one. Once it was pointed out to me, I'm like, "Oh, that's that's." I mean, that that's pretty atrocious. And I didn't notice it until I we actually read a letter at one point where somebody like brought it up, and it's like, "Wow, that's a really like." I I can't believe I didn't notice that, but you're right. Davies clearly has mommy issues. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, but I mean, like, also the you know the episode of fat shaming people. Um, yeah. You know, so episode. <laughs> um. Episodes, right? Episodes. I was thinking of um, the uh, partners in crime in particular. Yeah, partners in crime is you know the uh, Slitheine is the same same problem. The Slitheine I would defend to some degree, but I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to uh, distract from from the thrust of the conversation. I apologize, but I, I would defend the Slitheine. But please continue. Um. <coughs> so in every era, there are going to be blind spots because people are not perfect. And Moffat's blind spots are different than Davy's blind spots. Um, and we should absolutely point out each of their respective blind spots. And if those particular blind spots are ones that are personally important to you, uh, given where you are in your life, then that's going to absolutely affect whether you enjoy something or not, which is not a moral statement. It's an aesthetic one. Right. I mean, I think there is this... And this is this is where I would kind of. I think there is a false equivalence, though. To where I think there is this kind of sense of saying, well, like everyone has their blind spots, and therefore we can talk about them. But at some point, we have to accept it. And I don't think this is the argument you're making, but I do think that I see this argument made. You know, saying, well, like Davies has his things that he that that he is blind to, and and Moffat has his things. And so, therefore, they're kind of equal, right? Like, it's sort of the same thing. And um, But they're not the same thing. They're their own unique things, and you've got to right. treat each blind spot on its own lack of marriage. Right. Uh, especially in juxtaposition with the other things that it's trying to do. I mean, I would say Moffat is actually a feminist because what he is trying to do is improve the lot of women 
by presenting, you know, what he thinks are stories of strong, empowered women that will inspire other women to be stronger and more powerful uh, in the face of the society we have. And a lot of feedback from women who've watched the show says that's exactly what they got out of it. That doesn't mean that. <laughs> well, that people, mean read, that, people read Robert Heinlein the same way, so you know. yeah. But I mean, but I don't know that we would. We don't have Heinlein on record saying that's exactly what he was trying to do. And we do have Moffat being on record saying that's exactly what he's trying. We to do. have Heinlein on record record saying he was basing a lot of his female characters on his fucking wife, which I think is you know about as close as we're going to get to that in you know 1962 or whatever. But, yeah, but we don't have a statement from Heinlein saying, you know, I'm, you know, consider myself a feminist. I'm writing stuff that is, you know, designed to be feminist. Right. And no, I, we, I would agree with that. I mean, I guess. And I so, know. and so because Moffat has said these things, we have to, you know, actually look at that. And, you know, so we pay closer attention to <laughs> the fault lines in his work that reflect an older feminism than what's actually um you know current i think i think um you know phil's phil's uh two partners was was something like what was it um if you think moffat isn't a feminist you're factually wrong and my rebuttal was going to be if you think moffat is feminist enough you're factually wrong <laughs> yeah yeah he's not feminist enough right and um anyway like like so Whereas Davies never says, I'm a feminist and I'm writing feminist television. So we don't apply that critical lens to his work because we know Davies is coming out of a different culture with different intentions for the show. I would suggest, and I don't know, I I mean, this is kind of where I, I would suggest that even though we don't have a statement, you know, from Davies saying like specifically, I think that through the lens I would use, Davies does a better job of providing a, a feminist Doctor Who than uh moffat does i think moffat is a step back in terms of feminist content unless you view it specifically through the lens of subverting tropes where moffat is clearly better than davies but i think davies by writing more what i would say avoiding avoiding those tropes altogether he's actually able to write something that's new and fresh right and that isn't rooted in tropes of version right yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know, Donna. Donna's not I mean, Davies is not feminist enough when it comes to Donna. How so what way um uh, just expand on that. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but Well, like like how Jack who's attracted to everyone except Donna, who's an older woman. And Donna's the one who doesn't get to choose. Well, I think that's I, I think that's ageist more so than it's like anti-feminist, though. But ageism is anti-feminist. Well, ageism is absolutely anti-feminist. I mean, you know, we obviously bring a kind of intersectionalist view um, to this, yeah. but I. Um, but I, I mean, there, there's I that, the, that attitude. I, that attitude doesn't extend towards male characters, to the older male characters. You don't see an older man being mocked for being sexually attracted to someone. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, so there is that, that line there. I'm trying to think of examples now, but, you know, I mean, I would, I would, you know, I would provisionally accept that that's correct. Um, I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, again, I'm not going to say like it's, it's a, a, 
but because because Davies is not interested in exploring tropes and in subver- subverting them, he's not invoking problematic tropes in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so much of Moffat's aesthetic is getting you to believe that this trope is in play before subverting it. And that, I think, is what it makes some of Moffat's stuff painful to watch because you've got to sit through what seems like an earnest um, invocation of a trope. And that can be really triggering if you're aware of those tropes and how problematic they are in the first place. And to kind of like undercut it at the end, you've done like 40 minutes of playing with this trope and now you're going to spend eight minutes undercutting it and that's kind of out of balance. And it, right. it, it ends up, it can end up giving more power to the trope than, you know, a little bit of subversion at the end can undercut. You made my point for me. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, uh, there's something I wanted to say about Matt Smith. Sure. Because for me, when I got into the show, really, really got, I mean, I was, I've always been a Doctor Who fan. I started watching Doctor Who back in 1982. Yeah, I've been watching the show for a long time, and I was really disappointed with uh, the TV movie in 1996, despite being very excited about um, McGann's Doctor. Right. I never really got into the novelizations. I read a few of them. But whereas, you know, that was a very formative experience for Phil. Um, Right. I was at the age where that was not where I was going to be going with the show. And when when the revival came back, I was like, oh, they're giving this another try. And it was the end of the world. I was like, oh, okay, Yeah, this seems to be in good hands. They kind of know where they're going with this. Um, And then you get, you know, stories like Dalek and Father's Day by the time you get to. Uh, parting of the ways it's like oh my gosh this is so much better <laughs> than anything that you know kind of came before but right. at the same time it was not like deeply invested in the show as a fan watching it every week it was like oh you know i caught the first season on you know when it when the box set came out the following christmas i'm like okay yeah this is fun um and kind of did that until season four series four which um, at which point I was so deeply into Lost that I was starting to see kind of connections to Lost everywhere, including in Doctor Who and in particular to that season and in particular, particular to um, the library story, um, which kind of seemed to at the time reinforce some of my own thinking about Lost and what Lost was actually doing so subtle and behind the scenes that didn't, you know, the character drama is all on the surface and then the puzzle box is underneath. That's what Lost is. That's kind of, you know. So I, I, I would defend the Silence in the Library two-parter. Like, I, I think that's a, a perfectly uh, fine bit of television. Um, probably my second favorite Moffat script after The Empty Child. Um, cool. So, um... Oh, well, listen. Sorry. Okay, so listen... Listen would be one of those top three, yeah. Yeah, listen is really beautiful. Yeah, so, that's the episode Jack and I did. The first episode Jack and I did was us talking about how brilliant listen is. So you know, I didn't get series five until the box set came out, um, and I started watching that just before series six began. So by the time it was the, the only time I was actually watching Doctor Who live 
other than a few episodes of series four was series six. And at that time, the aesthetic, the puzzle box aesthetic was something that I was so excited about. Like, oh, yes. And so I'm like really deeply studying the characters. And during that series, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think Matt Smith is my doctor because Tom Baker had been my doctor for forever and ever because there were things Smith was doing with the character that I had never seen done with the character before, except maybe by Troughton. Um, and what, what, what kinds of things would you say are like, I mean, you know, you just, just briefly, like what, what is Matt Smith doing? That Smith is playing, Smith is playing the fool to hide his pain, to hide the doctor's pain. That's what he's doing. That's what his shtick is all about. Because he's trying to forget. So much of the Moffat era is about memory and about what you try to remember, what you try to forget. How And, you know, forgetting is such a wonderful thing because it's how we can actually move on from our traumas. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's that's a, I mean, that's something I hear people say. I don't see it in the performance, but it might be I just don't, I'm just not on the Matt Smith wavelength. Like, like I get that that's, that's the idea because that's also kind of what, I mean, Troughton is absolutely doing that um, in so many stories, kind of playing the full, um, I mean, the Dominators is the classic example of that, right? Um, where he's doing it explicitly, but he's doing it all the time. Um, Enemy of the World is doing it. Uh, uh, the Mind Robber to some degree. I mean, he's doing it. I mean, it's, it's pretty continual. But I don't see it in Smith. I just don't see it in the performance. And maybe it's just Matt Smith is doing something performance-wise that I'm just not tuned into. And that's also kind of where, I mean, it does kind of come back to the aesthetics, where Smith is making decisions where you are a brilliant person seeing this in the performance and in the writing, and I'm just blind to it. And that's that's kind of where I almost feel like there there's almost this where I feel like almost not getting into the, the Moffat era is almost something that's, wrong with me you know no but it's not wrong with you it's just it's catering towards a different audience than you right so you're actually kind of justified to not like it because you're not being catered to and you were being catered to before in the davies era of course i love the davies era too i love both eras um i'm hoping that i'm gonna love the chibnall era but i don't know yet obviously um what is your favorite era of Doctor Who? Probably the Moffat era. Um, but other eras that I also really love, um, you know, that first, the first two seasons of Hartnell are really just wonderful. The uh, Zoe era with uh, Troughton. Yep. Um, I was never a big fan of the Unit era, uh, which is all one thing, but I appreciate its aesthetics more now than I used to. I really love Pertwee, but I don't like many of his stories, if that yeah. makes sense. Like, yeah. I really love Pertwee's Doctor. Like, I love Pertwee's Doctor. But, <laughs> like, I, even though he's a Tory, I love Pertwee's Doctor. Um, when I was young, I loved the Hinchcliffe era. Yeah. Because of what, you know, that particular hammer horror aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the kind of stuff that, you know, you'd see on TV late at night as they're trying to fill the airwaves. And, you know, so that was something that I thought was kind of fun and transgressive. Um, whereas I wasn't all that fond of the Williams era because it was too silly. And now my opinions are completely switched on that. I actually 
think that the Williams era is more interesting than the Hinchcliffe era. Even though so much of the Williams era fails at what it's trying to do, at least it's trying to do something that's more than doing another horror pastiche. Yeah, I, I'm i not a big uh, horror fan in general. Like, I, I, I kind of appreciate the aesthetics uh, intellectually more so than, like, I, I really, like, just enjoy it. I love Sarah Jane, and I love Tom Baker in those early stories, and obviously <laughs> I'm a big Robert Holmes fan. But um, so much of the Hinchcliffe era just seems like, you know, kind of the same story every week, you know, and I'm just kind of bored by a bunch of it. But um, there are the some first- great stories in that. The first episode of Doctor Who I ever saw was The Hand of Fear, Part 3. <laughs> nice. And to see Eldred, like, get, you know, uh, a spear through the chest at the very end, I was like, what the fuck is going on? I thought this was the end of the show, and suddenly it's like, I didn't even realize that it was something serialized. Right, right, right. And then, you know, so... Shortly thereafter, it was like Leela. So Leela was really my first companion. Yeah. Uh, and I think Leela is fantastic. I think Leela actually goes back to Atalanta um, of Greek mythology. Because Atalanta was raised in the wild by a bear. Um, it was actually more of a wildling than I think some of the stories actually uh, demonstrate. Because, of course, those stories got corrupted by patriarchy in their retelling and getting written down. Did you uh, listen to our episode about uh, horror thing rock, by the way? Um, I'm halfway through it. Okay. I'm halfway through it. I'm loving it. <laughs> well, whole, thank you. Horror thing rock is one of my favorite stories too. Um, but that's really kind of a, a, a leftover of the Hinchcliffe era. Right. Um, I really like the bid, the bid means series, yeah. you know, the one season with Baker. Um, and you know, for all the reasons that Phil has kind of said, but uh, there's also a part of me that just likes the fresh aesthetic that John Nathan Turner brought to the show. Um, because it was really starting to look, uh, long in the tooth under Williams. I actually think, um, the leisure hive is, uh, underrated. Yeah, I was at first, at first I was like, oh no, they took my show off because I didn't understand the star field. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um, no I, I i mean i think i think particularly like um so so just to summarize my feeling uh, i think season 17 is just terrible for the most part i think douglas adams was a bad choice for script editor um for doctor who i think i love i love the hitchhiker's guide um making it overtly a comedy just rubs me the wrong way um it rubs it, it kind of brings tom baker's worst instincts to the fold there are some great stories in that season um i would defend creature from the pit honestly um but that's mostly for romana <laughs> um and uh the villain in that who i love um but uh and then uh, when but then you know john nathan turner comes on and you get the leisure hive and you get uh Megalos, which is again a story which I think is better than its reputation mm-hmm. deserves, or has given it. Um, I, that new aesthetic really is a, a fascinating thing because suddenly it's like you know day glow colors and like squares or uh, like triangles, and um, they're, they're really kind of doing science fiction again. And um, I, I kind of feel bad because she and I covered um, much of that Bidmead season and 
didn't have a great like opinion of it in kind of the the podcasting form but i think it was more like kind of like when you watch them kind of individually it's just kind of there there is this it's kind of math and plotting and and kind of like there there's not a great um story in a lot of those stories it's kind of just like there's some ideas that aren't really um built into a great story and i think that's kind of what maybe um you know, we, Shannon responded to uh, more and mm-hmm. more with those stories, but um, uh, I think there are some really, really interesting stuff. Um, I just wish that Bidmead had had like written more before becoming script before becoming script editor, so he had kind of a better sense of like how to write a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, and I think that the like you need to be a, a, a physicist to understand this is overstated with the Bidmead year. I think that there is a lot of you know, like, oh, I don't know what a tachyon is. You don't have to know what a tachyon is, and he's not even using it in any intelligent way. He's just throwing it in there as like techno babble. The point is like some deeper, like philosophical question more so than it's like some like deeply scientific thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the direction of that episode is really phenomenal. I think, um, you know, it kind of goes in some weird, maybe not such great places, but just the fact that they're not just taking a camera and pointing it at the performers, but actually weaving the camera into a particular, to, to get particular shots, particular effects. Do you own the Leisure Hive? Oh, I've seen it so many times when I recorded it on videotape. I don't know that I even need to own it at this there, point. There's a, there's a documentary on the disc that's about the direction. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, um, basically uh, talking about how the, the director uh, was hired on. He was a, a brilliant director, but he had no idea how to make TV on a BBC budget, and he got uh, you know shit-canned at the end and never came back. So um, There's a reason that looks better than all the rest of Doctor Who in some ways. It's because okay. he spent a lot of money on it. Ah, okay. Um, and, you know, I really like the McCoy era. Yeah. Um, don't know that I fully appreciated it when I first saw it. But back then, you know, then I was like, you know, career woman in her 20s and like catching up with those stories that I had sadly missed because, you know, I was dealing with more important things in my life at that point. Sure. Um, whereas now I'm like, Ooh, yeah, you know, I understand and appreciate a lot more of what, what McCoy has done. So, I mean, there are so many eras of Doctor Who that I really love. <laughs> You know what's what's interesting, and this is what I find like, with uh, when I when I kind of read Phil and listen to Phil. You know, I think Phil has said you know something like, "Well, you know, <laughs> I nod along." You know, like yeah, I love Sylvester McCoy, Zoe's great, etc. And then Moffat is the greatest writer who's ever written for the show. And I go, "What? I don't understand." Like, <laughs> you know, where, where I feel like I'm just there's just a connection I'm not making. You know, where we but, can you agree know, that's again, on that's again in his wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. We can agree on everything up to and then Moffat comes on and then just aesthetically I'm just not on board anymore, you know? Yeah. Um And I think that really is what it is. I mean, I think that like I mean, we will throw around like sexist and gender essentialist and that sort of thing. And um, you know, I, I try to kind of pull back a little bit from like the personal stuff, you know. Um I, I do have deep criticisms of the kind of Moffat era, and a lot of which, I mean, I agree with like 95% of uh, Jack's post about a voice for the prosecution. I think mm-hmm. that's a, I mean, I, I would I would stand behind. Yeah, I would just stand behind that post completely. Um, in fact, before uh, Jack came on the show, I had Shanna read that post 
and said, this is who Jack Graham is. And she read it like 10 minutes before we recorded. She's like, I'm in love with this guy. Yes, I know you are. <laughs> she didn't yeah. read it until 10 minutes before, but she's like, oh, this is the guy we're going to talk to? I need to talk to this guy. Um, yeah. Shanna fell in love with Jack before she ever met him. So, you know. Aww. Um, yeah, so, again, you know, I think that there's, one of the things that I actually like about the show is that each era tries to do something different. And I I do think that Moffat does something very different than what Davies did. And if, you know, your introduction to the show is what Davies did and what, you know, and that 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 aesthetic was what you valued the most, then it's got to be a real shock. Right. to dial it back and get something completely different you know and honestly now i kind of look back at that and i think you know i like uh now that i've seen all the classic series i kind of look back at it and i go I, I don't if you gave it to me in 2005 and said how would you bring back doctor who i would not do the same things that davies did like i appreciate it like i i think I, i've definitely downgraded david Tennant in my um you know, kind of rankings as opposed to when I first started the podcast. Um, David Tennant would like, I, I like his performance, but I think a lot of the era is, is there. I have a lot more problems with a lot of what they're doing in that era um, than I did when I was first kind of like rah, rah, RTD was great. Um, partly because of just in, engaging with kind of fan culture and understanding the way that, uh, you know, the problems that people find in it, you know, even the, the, the feminist issues, which I wasn't like, you know, I didn't see a lot of that stuff when I first kind of watched through it. Um, but I would still watch almost any David Tennant episode of almost any Matt Smith episode. And that's, and, and again, I think that just goes back to the aesthetics, but I, I really love talking to you and reading Phil and talking to Phil and, and other um, Moffat fans and Matt Smith fans. Um, just because I like to know what I'm missing which is always great. Well, and conversely, you know, I really like um, listening to and reading um, the Moffat critics because there's certainly a part of me that's so happy to get the fan service that I want to be reminded, oh, you know, what you're actually looking for maybe isn't as important as you're making it out to be. Um, And kind of looking at it at a bigger picture, especially Moffat's, I mean, um, Jack's takedown and all the class issues that really kind of get glossed over in so much critique of the Moffat era and that really do kind of need to be um, brought more to the surface. Right. Um, You know, certainly a lot, tons has been, tons of pixels have been spilt over um, the problematic aspects of Moffat's feminism and how it kind of like is a throwback to Marston and Wonder Woman in some respects. Which is, which is, which is the sort of thing to where I kind of, what I, I guess, I guess that's why, I mean, now we've spent like two hours talking about this or an hour and a half talking about this. It's almost kind of where I started talking where I'm kind of like, I almost, I've just kind of made my peace with it. Like I, you know, when series 10 comes up, I'm sure I'm going to bitch about it on the podcast again. So, so don't <laughs> hold me to this, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of at this point to where like now that Moffat's announced he's leaving, I'm kind of, okay, you get one more season. I'm glad that the people who like it will get to say goodbye and, you know, I, I will watch it and I will enjoy what I get out of it. And maybe it will be brilliant. I mean, honestly, I think series eight was better than anything in the Matt Smith era. And I think series nine was better than series eight. And so I kind of expect series tend to be, you know, from what I see Moffat's best series. Um, and that's gotta be kind of exciting. 
Yeah, I mean, it is. But it's also the ones I've liked the least are the Moffat episodes, the ones actually written by him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, except for Listen. Listen, I think is brilliant. Listen is my favorite episode of, of, well, Listen is firmly, Listen is firmly in the, in the soap opera aesthetic also. Yeah, Listen is, you know, and, and I think what Listen does is it tells a story for me. Like it actually has this kind of, it actually is kind of communicating some, you know, fairly straightforward emotional connection. It's also very much about, um, you know, science and reason and the way that we, kind of follow down uh, burrow holes in the way that we make mistakes and and um kind of asking about like connections between like getting a second opinion and that sort of thing which um deeply connects to me just as a rationalist so i have kind of personal connection to that one but i just i love listening to bits i think it's i mean it's not perfect i mean i could fiddle with a bit here and there but i think it's a really really great episode of television just 45 minutes of just brilliant it makes me happy every time um i have a secret confession to make sure um, which is that watching capaldi has made me um made me more aware of why people have been turned off by smith's performance because there are very different ways of performing and capaldi is just an absolute master it's like oh my gosh yeah yeah, you know, he's probably even better than Eccleston. Eccleston was really fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, so just the 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 power of Capaldi's performance is something that I really love about his era. Yeah. But I have not gotten an emotional connection to series eight and series nine like I did during the Pond era. And even and even and even through the end of the Smith era, there's there's more distance with his doctor and with those stories, um, more emotional distance. And part of that's Clara, who's um, always kind of trying to keep herself at, at remove, whereas Pond was um, much more visible in what her issues were. See, I need to rewatch, um, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, at least series five and kind of get a sense because and this is going to sound like I, I almost feel like Amy Pond didn't have a character at all as much as she had ticks. Like, uh-huh. like um, my response to her was very much, and, and this is, I mean, it's the sitcom aesthetic, which I think we. Well, it's also Gillen's performance. Yeah, because Gillen doesn't really start to nail the character until you get to about Vincent, and it's right around Vincent that she, that her acting ability really finally starts to kick in. Right. And um, there's a bit of disservice to Amy's character up until that point. Um, well, Amy's choice, she was really good in Amy's choice too. I need to re I mean, I need to revisit some of this and, and, and kind of watch it with a more critical eye because I'll, I'll, you know, a lot of it, I just kind of watched through and went, this is, I, this is, you know, and that's kind of, it isn't for me like that. That's just kind of, and I, and I think we've agreed on that. And, um, whereas like Billy Piper, I mean, she nailed, the character of Rose right off the bat. I love Billy Piper. And, I love her in this show. And her performance is just so solid and consistent and well honed. Uh, whereas with Gillen, it's kind of obvious that this is like something that she's still trying to figure out for those first few episodes. And so Amy does come across as being kind of a cipher, kind of vacuous. But I think that has more to do with the with the performance than with the writing. 
Right. And well, I also think there's this, I mean, the, the puzzle boxiness kind of gets in the way for me, maybe. Yeah. Um, where, you know, we're kind of, you know, the whole thing is like, well, you have to go back and rewatch it two or three times and to, to really kind of pick up on the details. And, uh, you know, I appreciate art that works that way, but I think it, it also kind of has to work on a first watch. Like it, it has to, there's just sort of make me want to come back to it and explore it again. Um, um, Let's Kill Hitler, I think, is the perfect example of that. Because the first watch of, of Let's Kill Hitler, I was like, what the fuck is this? This was not what I was hoping for. This is not what I thought that I needed. And it was only like maybe the third time that I was watching it because I was kind of doing frame by frame analysis anyways, that I it suddenly I, I felt like I unlocked a puzzle piece. And then suddenly that unlocking that puzzle piece gave me the emotional context that I thought was missing from that story. Which yeah. is that the just that the Amy bot is a metaphor for Amy's shutting down her emotions in the face of this tragedy. And once I realized that it's like, oh my God, that's that's fucking scary. They are actually inside Amy's head and that's what Amy is doing throughout that whole story. And, you know, it's a very, it's not the sort of response that you would get from, uh, from the soap opera aesthetic, which would be to really kind of like play into, you know, like Rose and Doomsday banging on the wall, crying her eyes out. Which, which is, I mean, it's too much. Like that's, you know, I would, I would, I understand people who are like, I mean, do we really have to watch her cry that much? You know, um, um, yeah, but, you know, at the same time, that's what the aesthetic is. And it, um, I found it to be very effective. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely found it to be effective at the time. Yeah. When I, when I watched it, I, I, uh, I actually haven't revisited that lately. Um, I actually have revisited, I actually revisit Parting of the Ways fairly regularly because I, I love that two-parter. Like, to bits. How many times have you seen these serials? Um, which one? Well, all of them. Most of Classic Who I've seen one time because I went through it all, you know, kind of consecutively, except for the ones that we've podcasted where it's two to three. Um, New Who, most of Matt Smith's era I've seen once. Uh, we've podcasted a couple of those, which I've seen twice. There are maybe one or two I've seen a couple of times. Um, series 8 and Series 9, I've watched them all at least twice, maybe three times, because when we were podcasting them live, we'd watch them two times before we podcasted them most of the time. Um, and then, uh, you know, a lot of the, actually the, uh, Eccleston year I love so much that I will actually just put on, I will just start from Rose. That will be just kind of idle watching for me. Um, series one is actually still my favorite series of New Who. Well, that's a very respectable opinion to have. That's I think it's very, the only reasonable a, opinion. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's, in some ways it is the very strongest, uh, season. Um, you know, just in terms of the quality of stories going all the way through. Yeah, they, they had 16 years to figure it out, right? That's kind of where I... Um, actually, one day we're going to do an episode that's uh, Rose. Uh, where we actually will cover Rose at, at some point. And uh, my uh, my my like central idea is basically to say, so we, we'll do the TV movie first and then say, Rose did everything the TV movie did, and then all the things the TV movie did wrong, it does it right. And that's the that's basically what Rose is. So for me, um, I've seen all of Classic Who at least once. Sure. Uh, with the exception of The War Machines and The Recons. 
Um, there's most I have not seen most of the recons, and the War Machines is the only complete story that I have not seen. Why? Why not the War Machines? If I might ask. I just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fine. It's it's a perfectly fine story. Like it's, I mean, I, I actually quite like the War Machines, but yeah, go ahead. Um, and maybe because there's a part of me, it's like, well, there's got to be one story that you haven't seen, so that you've got something to look forward to as the one story that you haven't seen, and eventually, I'm just okay, okay. I haven't seen survival yet um, because it's the last one. Right. You know, like, and it's, I was waiting until I'd seen all the recons. So like the space pirates would not be my very last doctor who, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I have now seen all the recons. So I need to watch survival. I just haven't watched it yet. Um, I've seen every one of Baker's stories, probably at least a dozen times. Sure. Stories because I was taping them off of the TV set and watching the videos over and over and over again. Um, I've seen all of Davison's stories at least a dozen, half dozen times. Um, I was more interested in Baker than Davison, but Davison was also really cute. So um, he is adorable, and Tegan's in so many of those. So you know, and and you will never hear me say anything bad about Tegan. Yeah, no, I would never say anything bad about Tegan. Um, Tegan's fabulous. The purple, the purple outfit, maybe, but not Tegan herself. Right, yeah, the, the stewardess outfit leaves much to be desired. But then her fashion sense starts getting really interesting. It does. Um, I've seen all of McCoy's episodes at least a half dozen times. Um, Colin Baker's maybe twice, three times. Three, mm-hmm. Maybe three times through that. And then with all the new Who episodes, I've seen each one at least six times and some of them a dozen or more. Nice. Um, at one point... On Gallifrey Base, I was kind of like going through each episode systematically. And, you know, when you're doing that, you're going to watch the episode several times. Um, in addition to the, you know, the first viewing. So there definitely are like individual uh, classic and new stories like listen when I was uh, when I because I've seen that one probably five times or six times now. Um, so so what this makes me is someone who's obsessive. Right. And, and perhaps a bit compulsive about her Doctor Who. And, <laughs> and which is so, great. I you know, I, I love it. But, you know, at the same time it's like how much of Doctor Who was meant to be seen just once and then not seen again. And certainly that's like much the case for the classic era. Mm-hmm. They weren't even thinking about archiving that stuff. But at some point people started getting VCRs and taping them and watching them over and over again obsessively. And I have to think that Moffat's one of those people who watched the show over and over again. You know, he was excited about Target novelizations coming out. Oh, and that takes me back. So, you know, when get, getting to my main point, which was um, uh, Let's Kill Hitler, is that it really is, I think it really is a story that doesn't, become fleshed out until seeing it three or four times and you know if it's just seen once then it goes by so fast and so breakneck that it's just kind of like a roller coaster and if you haven't ridden it if you haven't done a roller coaster four or five times at least to the point where you can anticipate what it's doing and get a sense of the design um they they can just seem like a mess right course hitler was a hot mess anyways but (laughs) the dictator and the episode (laughs) yeah um 
yeah, no, I can, I mean, I can, and this is kind of where, um, because, you know, in the process of, like, podcasting these and, I, and um, you know, podcasting uh, the movies that we, that we do on my other show and that sort of thing, um, there's definitely a difference between the preparation that goes into, like, kind of doing a critical read where I'm trying to, like, oh, now I have to have something clever to say versus uh, just being a kind of casual fan. And for someone who has a, uh, a, a two-year-old weekly podcast about Doctor Who, I'm kind of a casual fan of Doctor Who, you know, like, like it's, I don't care about the, you know, the names of the monsters and, you know, what's the greatest part three of all time and that sort of thing. I care about the, the themes and the, the ideas and the characters. And, time is the hand of fear part three. Well, that's cause that's the first one you saw. <laughs> Um, in that case, the greatest part three of all time is uh, the Cave of Skulls because that's the first one I ever saw. Because um, I watched them in order, right? Um, no. But, so, but so, have, so, have you noticed that you know how your opinion changing about some stories as you've gone back and watched them over again? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's it. That's just part of like your, you know, it's it's the you can never step into a river twice, right? You are the same river twice. Um, coming back to it and revisiting it, uh, certainly I have uh, different responses to it. I mean, um, the time, uh, well, I guess the time monster, I didn't have a, I mean, I kind of responded to that very much the same way I did the first time. I think that's a kind of surface level story. I don't, I mean, despite the fact that there are some kind of deeper uh, kind of mythological questions and such, I don't know that that one really um, needed a second watch, but certainly, um, I mean, almost every story. I come back to a second time and find new things in it, find more interesting things in it. Um, I think the time monster is one of these stories where it's like, you know what it's like when you're just starting to wake up and you don't quite understand what's going on and you kind of stumble out of bed and it takes a while before you're actually fully awake. Right. But you're still more conscious than you were when you were dreaming. And to me, the time monster is one of those stories where it's kind of like the, the production is starting to wake up, but they're still really groggy and kind of stumbling out of bed and have some bad breath and, you know, have not, have not become fully awake, but I still appreciate it as something that is trying to become awake, even though it's not awake yet. Right. Yeah. It's a very, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, a, I mean, I, I think it's better than its reputation. I mean, I, I don't know that we, um, I mean, we said some nice things about it. We kind of said some shitty things about it, but I think it's it's at worst kind of in the like middle grade of Doctor Who. I don't think it's like atrociously bad the way some other stories are. No, I do. I mean, I every story I've revisited in the Moffat era specifically to podcast them. You know, at least since the very beginning. You know, so so maybe not like when we did the eleventh hour, where I had a more negative opinion than the first time I watched it because I kind of liked the eleventh hour the first time. It was only after kind of rewatching it for the podcast that I started having a more, uh, you know, kind of picking at the details kind of side of it where I disliked yeah. it more. Um, but, you know, we, we recently redid the Pandora Opens to the Big Bang, and I feel like I kind of approached that differently and, and enjoyed it more than I did the first time. Uh, the God Complex we covered fairly early on, uh, alongside the Mind Robber, we were doing two episodes at a time. Uh-huh. Um, because I was looking specifically at like, you know, godlike Doctor Who villains and, you know, okay. kind of doing a new Who and a classic Who. Um, at the, in the I've beginning. It also got a Minotaur. Right, it also does have a Minotaur. 
Um, and actually, the Minotaur myth doesn't belong in Atlantis. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised we didn't like uh, ask that. Uh, you know, I was expecting you to get deeper into the mythology earlier on, but you know that's fine too. Um, yeah, I. But yeah, so you're watching the God Complex. I'm watching the God Complex, and I I had a I mean I, I had a different response. I think I I get kind of where. And this is also kind of once I saw it the second time, I'd already started reading Phil's work, and I'd, I'd kind of read some of your work. I think I had read some of your work at that time, maybe not. Um, but I had I had started engaging with the critical community more, and kind of seeing what other people get out of some of these stories, and seeing the kind of more metatextual kind of trope level, you know, subversion kind of sides of things. Um, I think there are some moments of real beauty in the God Complex. There are things I really like about the God Complex. I also think it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of the stuff that I really dislike about the Matt Smith era, which is the kind of, um, the kind of ingrained sexism and the, in the, you know, the, uh, kind of sitcom tropiness. It's, it's a little bit more complex. It's doing a little bit more interesting things. Um, it also, uh, I mean, I like some of the characters in that, the, um, the, uh, South Asian woman, uh, I forget her name. Um, I really love that character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the the Tivolian character who I I wrote a piece about the Tivolians. <laughs> That's yeah. how Phil first discovered me. Um, so uh, you know I I should probably just point people to that, and you can go read that if you want to know what I think about the Tivolians. But um, there's some interesting stuff in it. But um, God, I don't know that I have a point. Uh, except that like I responded to it differently. I don't know that I responded to it better or worse. But I get like rewatching some of this. I will respond to it better, and I'm looking forward to doing that. And that's that's kind of what engaging with your work and engaging with Phil's work has kind of taught me. Is I really need to go back and reengage with some of this with a with a different eye. But I still think that like the Twelfth Doctor saying overtly sexist things about Clara's appearance is just atrocious, and I don't know that there's a defense for that. If that makes sense, you know, like I still think there are going to be things that I'm just not going to be able to get on board with, regardless of how much I I can appreciate some of the metaphorical sides of things that I've been twigged to and will now be able to recognize. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know about Capaldi's comments the 12th doctor's comments on Clara. I mean, to me, it's kind of like, he's not actually playing the fool. He's just being kind of confused um, about it. But you notice that once Missy came in, they stopped uh, giving him those lines. No, he doesn't. He hasn't done that in series nine. I mean, he might've done it once or something, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't think he did it at all in series nine or since Missy came on. I wouldn't I, be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised though, if some of the feedback came back and was like, Oh, you know what? This is actually kind of problematic and maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. I, I not, not, think not that it was trying to be overtly misogynistic or anything, but I almost think Moffat can't help it. Like he just throws this stuff in. Like he thinks it's a funny line. Like, Oh, you got makeup on your face, you know, and there's, Oh, you got that bit or whatever. Oh, are you going to wear that? Like, it's almost like a tick that Moffat just has in his writing. Like he just like continue, just kind of tosses it in, and then once he had like Missy to give those kind of lines to, he doesn't have to get to the doctor anymore. It, it just it felt like this like very much a sea change because you look at like Missy's comments in like The Magician's Apprentice, and it feels different coming from Missy. It feels like it's a very different attitude, whereas the doctor kind of saying it. Whereas if you can give it to this overtly villainous character and the the master, you know, like 
and, and a woman. Also, who's also an overtly camp character. Right. It feels very different than like your hero, this this person. And I and I know that you can kind of talk about moral culpability and, and you know kind of ambiguity with the doctor, but he's still the fucking title character of the show who we're supposed to be kind of rooting for to some degree or the other. Um he's still the protagonist and you know, kind of saying you know, this protagonist is saying like overtly misogynistic things to his best friend is just like really difficult for me to get behind. Like it doesn't kill series eight for me, but it's I understand people who like responded really, really negatively to that. Yeah. Because it just feels like a slap in the face every time. I understand too. But then, you know, also perhaps it's because I'm st- so steeped in the classic series, you know, and going back to like Tom Baker, you know, his doctor occasionally was not actually aware of how he was coming across or what the social convention actually was. I, the, I, the countess in city of death and says, you're a beautiful woman, probably. Which and, is a great line, but like, it's not, it's not like I would get that defense more if Capaldi was making comments that were like, your ankles are the wrong color or, you know, like, like things that were just, you know, kind of off the wall and weird as opposed to being like, you've got your makeup and the, you know, your makeup, your face looks fat and, you know, like saying she has boy hips and that sort of thing, which are overtly gendered and overtly rooted in this like 21st century British culture. Yeah. Face is round. That's what he says, which (laughs) is true. I mean, Coleman's the, the structure of her skull is very round. Right. Most people have like, you know, a longer face than she does it's not that she's got a fat face it's actually just very round like an apple yeah i mean i don't know i feel like i I especially when she's wearing her hair short right i mean i i I really like clara as a character and i i I thought that people who i thought i think there are some i think people who support clara and people who hated clara there was some deeply problematic stuff in in that conversation um partly like saying calling her a control freak i mean just that term just i have i have issues with which we talked about earlier i don't want to get back into whereas Um, whereas i don't have those terms with that that issue with that term just because it's been a part of my vocabulary for so long sure i mean i guess they i mean it just it seems to which is a term i've also used towards men i mean i never really even thought of it as a gendered term Maybe that's maybe that's me then. Maybe I just have this like very kind of negative like where I feel like it's almost intrinsically misogynistic. I mean, I've I've made that statement on this podcast before that like saying a woman is a control freak is almost specifically a gendered misogynistic thing to say almost by definition. But I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong on that. So, you know. Or maybe it's something that's, you know, kind of crept up to there such that it's more present and visible now. Right, something that I was not as aware of growing up when I did. It's possible. Yeah, that's probably. A, I need to think about that and, and probably revisit that at some point. That could be an essay for Reform Press, maybe down the line. Everything is a possible essay for Reform Press down the line. Producing content for Phil is my part-time job now. <laughs> and, the the pay is so, the and the pay stuff. is so good. The pay is amazing. You know. <laughs> I just quit my I just quit my day job now because uh, I'm writing I'm writing a weekly essay for Phil. Speaking of pay, I need to get some sleep so that I can drive to 
Uh, I was about to I was about to wrap it up here. Um, so yeah, thank you, Jane, for being on the show and uh, appreciate it greatly. And I think we're gonna go to bed now. Okay, good. All right, <laughs> you know, but um, thank you very much for being on, and I will talk to you later. Email me yeah. anytime, okay? Alrighty. All right. Hey, good night. Bye. Bye.